This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have three stories. Blink by Marion Allen, Love Mortar by Amelia Gray, and Goodbye Blue by Tracy McBride. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts. Blink, written by Marion Allen, read by Kelly Shriver. Listening time, five and a half minutes. Blink, by Marion Allen. Philida Brown, teacher of ninth grade English, made a face at her dumpy, rumpled reflection in the classroom window. The parking lot was empty, all the students were tucked dryly into cars or onto buses, and now the clouds turned afternoon into evening, and now lightning flared so thickly the thunder rumbles got mixed up with one another. Philly cringed at every flash, every crash. Perfect ending to a perfect day. The kids, as if they had picked up energy from the approaching storm, had been barely controllable. Four more weeks and I'm out of here, she thought, early retirement, here I come. She was more than ready after 20 frugal maiden years of diagramming sentences and holding the geniuses of literature up to the interest of the pitiless young. 20 years she had lived for quiet evenings, for summer devoted to her nieces and nephews, for the few kids each year who suddenly lit up inside, transformed in the blink of an eye by something in class that struck sparks off in their brains. She stumped into the hall, glad to escape to its fluorescent windowlessness. She snapped off the light and closed the door. The thunder was muffled here, and the lightning was reduced to small, regularly spaced square explosions, filtered through the little glass panels set in the classroom doors. Safe, she thought. Afternoon, Philida, she jumped. Edward. He stepped from the darkened classroom next to hers, looking as crisp and unruffled now as he had in the morning. His tie was still snug, his shirt buttoned, his cuffs buttoned, his jacket buttoned. Not a salt and pepper hair out of place. He taught science, and his name was Edward Plaistow. The kids called him Mr. Plastic. Edward pulled his door shut. Lovely storm. If you like them. He raised his eyebrows and literally looked down his nose at her. Philly felt, as she still did after years of conversations with him, trapped in one of those dreams where you're in a school you don't know, being asked for homework you haven't done by a teacher you don't remember. This is ridiculous. I'm 42 years old. I'm about to retire, she thought. She lifted a defiant face and snapped, I don't like storms. I can see that. I, on the other hand, find them quite bracing. He had probably never been caught out in a storm as sudden and violent as this one was. He probably didn't know how it felt to be so close to a lightning strike that the metal eyelets on your sneakers scorched the canvas around them. She had been ten, setting up a picnic on the hill behind the house. Her mother had just stepped out onto the porch, carrying a thermos of sweet tea, and her father had followed bent over the picnic basket, pretending it was almost too heavy to hold. The sky had darkened between the time Philly left the house and the time they did, and now the wind whipped the blanket from the ground into the nearby oak, scattering plastic plates and flatware in all directions. She jumped up just as rain broke from the clouds and floods, and, with no preliminaries, the oak burst open and one of its roots erupted. One second she had been laughing. The next she had been stunned, light-blinded, unable to move. Papa had run up and dragged her into the house, his bellowing fear for her more harrowing than the strike. Edward lifted an arm and, astoundingly, burst into song. Volcanoes have a splendor that is grim, and earthquakes only terrify the dolts. But to him who's scientific, there is nothing that's terrific in the falling of a flight of thunderbolts.
When she only gaped at him, he said, now you're supposed to say, yes, in spite of all my meekness, if I have a little weakness, it's a passion for a flight of thunderbolts. Gilbert and Sullivan, the Mikado, it's an opera, a comic opera. How many years had she known him? Fifteen? He had been here when she transferred to be closer to her apartment. Yes, fifteen years. And she had never known he liked opera, never known he could or would sing. I know the piece, she said at last. I know the song. I just don't agree with it. In spite of all my meekness, if I have a little weakness, it's a hatred for a flight of thunderbolts. Ha ha, he said. But she knew that that was the way he actually laughed, as if he had taught himself how by reading it in a book. Ha ha, rather clever, turning it around like that. Very good. The rumbling outside seemed to hold its breath, but then came a crash so tremendous it seemed to come at them from behind every closed door and down from the ceiling. The lights went out. The hall went black. Philly reached for the only possible comfort around, Mr. Plastic. Her hands slapped against his lapels and gripped them. Then his arms were around her, and she was pressed close against him, her head nestled between his shoulder and his lowered face. He smelled of Old Spice aftershave and laundry starch. She felt his breath on her ear. Lights blazed through the windows in the classroom doors, and thunder cracked and rolled. Philly squeaked. Edward snugged her closer, one hand on her head, his palm shielding her ear, the other hand on her back, issuing gently reassuring pats. The next round of thunder, not quite ear-splitting, lagged behind the lightning. The next was tardier and more muffled. Philly relaxed, though she kept her grip on Edward's lapels. You sang. She felt his chuckle through the warm skin of his throat. I don't know what got into me. It must have been the storm. The emergency lights came on, dim and slightly blue. Edward cocked his head toward the ceiling. I think the worst of the electrical storm is past, but it sounds like it's raining buckets. We could wait it out in the lobby, get some milk and cookies from the vending machines, watch the rain, she said. So they sat on a bench, painted the school colors hand in hand and side by side, fused by lightning. Lives changed forever, just like that. The End Marion Allen is a member of Southern Indiana Writers Group. She has always lived in Kentucky, Indiana, and the inside of her own head. Her website is marionallen.com, M-A-R-I-A-N-A-L-L-E-N.com. Love, Mortar, written by Amelia Gray, read by Dave Robinson. Listening time, 3 minutes and 45 seconds. Love, Mortar, by Amelia Gray. My love for you is like a brick. It sits silent in me when you bring out my food at the dine and dart, red tray aloft, your skin gleaming like grilled onions. My love is rough around the edges, but solid through the center, fresh from the kiln. My love for you is heavy and dark, Jenny. It builds and breaks down, Jenny. It cracks the windows between you and me. You mixing milkshakes for Little League winners. And me, miserly with sandwich wrappers in my car. You, smiling down at the register like a woman with secrets. And me, in agony over the golden arch of your eyebrow. A brick, inert and dangerous. This love can be worn down, but there is always substance to it, always heft as when you struggle to lift the box of flash-frozen patties, that iced mead against your bare arms, the cold thickness of your flesh a barrier against the protected warmth of your lungs, your heart, your bones. When your manager helps you with that box, the brick grinds in my chest. Your manager, 
Bill of the blue eyes, Bill of the no parking policy, Bill of the fast food tie. He tucks it in his shirt as he walks to the bathroom. You might be kind and claim that Bill is a good man, but what you'll soon learn is that there are no good men, Jenny. None left at all. Not even me. Though I'm good deep down. Almost to the center. Almost to the center. But the center of me is that brick. It's there when you bring my cheeseburger no lettuce on a steaming red tray. It's there when you reach into your flat front pouch for my straw. It's there when you pull your hair up behind your visor when you go in for your shift, and when you lean over the grease trap with your scraper and bucket. It's there when you stand at the register, Jenny, your unpainted fingernails hovering over the keys as you think of those old dollar bills, the tens and rolls of quarters, wondering if you shouldn't just no-sail the register and open it. One of those times when blue-eyed striped-tie Bill is smoking a cigarette in the bathroom and looking at the Sears catalog he has hidden behind the toilet. You could just open that register and reach in with two hands and pull out fistfuls of cash and put it in your front pocket, stuffing it all down there, paper-wrapped straws scattering across the greasy floor. You'd walk out and throw your visor into the garbage and you would never come back. But where would you go with your great treasure? I see you on the beach at Galveston, peeling off that thick, dirty uniform and walking slow into the water, trading the salt of french fries and tater tots for the healing salt of the ocean. I see you saving souls in that warm water, Jenny. I see you taking men in that water and making bricks of them all. You sink them there and build a wall with them and create purpose to their roughness and use to their weight. You build a seawall and stand on the other side with your feet planted wide on the hot sand, your golden hair streaming behind you like a flag of independence. You have a power, and there is no reason this power should frighten you. Surely you see how Bill looks at you and the men paving the road, and even me over my cheeseburger, no lettuce, sucking chocolate milk through a straw, we are all drawn to you. But I am the only one who understands that draw, knowing how I started the kiln's fire myself long ago. Now, my guts are full of clay, and you can dig it out yourself. Open me up and hold the dangerous brick in your hands. Feel the sharpness under your fingers. It's deadly complexity. End. Amelia Gray, an Arizona native, currently resides in San Marcos, Texas. Her stories have recently appeared, or are forthcoming, in Spork, Swivel, and Barbaric Yop. Goodbye Blue, written by Tracy McBride, read by Ann Rushton. Listening time, 12 minutes. Goodbye, Blue. Mom ran away to Spain today. Dad rings me to tell me about it. I leave work early and go around home to see what's going on. He's sitting at the dining room table, clutching the letter from Mom in a white-knuckled grip. I've never seen him so upset. Not when Grandpa died. Not when my brother Michael burned down the garage playing with matches when he was ten. An alien spaceship could have landed on the back lawn, and Dad would have just grunted at the little green men to shift that bloody thing before it killed the grass 
then turn back to the rugby on TV. But this is more alien than spaceships, more painful than death. Michael's reaction doesn't help. Michael's 17, three years younger than me, but a good head taller. A head and a half, if you count the extra height his dirty brown dreadlocks give him. When he reads the letter, he laughs and says, Way to go, Mom, like it's all a big joke, then goes to raid the kitchen cupboard. I try to clip his ears for that one, the way Mum would have. But he's developed a sixth sense about sibling violence after seventeen years as my little brother and dodges me without breaking stride. At first glance, it does seem like a joke. What the hell would Mum be doing going to Spain? Then I recall the many times she'd told some new acquaintance the story of her name. When Mum's mother, Grandma Lambert, had been pregnant with Mum, she visited a fortune teller who made some startling revelations about the child she was carrying. It would be a daughter, the fortune teller said, and that daughter had been a Spanish princess in a former incarnation. For good luck, she should give her daughter a Spanish name. So Grandma Lambert poured through all the baby name books until she settled on the name Loretta, which means pure. Mum always ended her tale with a wistful, I'd love to go to Spain. The second installation of Mum's life story she reserved for Michael and me. It would be delivered in that you-kids-don't-know-how-lucky-you-are tone of voice. Grandma Lambert died of cancer or something when Mum was ten, leaving her to raise three younger brothers. Grandpa Lambert wasn't much use. He considered bringing up children to be women's work, so he swiftly deputized Mum. Behind Mum's back, Michael and I would roll our eyes at each other. In our crueler moments, Michael would mind playing a violin, and I would say that, if that were the fortune teller's idea of good luck, I would hate to see bad luck. Dad and Michael would have been great mates with Grandpa Lambert. It's close to dinner time, and the most complex meal they've ever prepared is a ham sandwich. Four times now, one or the other of them has gone to the fridge, opened it, and peered in longingly, willing a roasted dinner to leap out at them. I'm no great shakes as a cook myself, but I managed to throw together a passable meal of steak and chips. The two men eat quickly. When they have finished, they rise from the table in unison, still chewing their last mouthful, and, without a word, go into the lounge, leaving the dishes on the table. I follow them and ask Michael to help me clean up. He looks at me as if he has been struck with a temporary fit of deafness. I look at Dad for support, but he's turned deaf and blind. I stomp into the kitchen and start banging pots and the cupboard doors about. The volume on the TV goes up in response. The sound of someone noisily washing dishes under a cloud of resentment must have a calming effect on the pair because they are both in positions of relaxed sprawl by the time I've finished. Dad says he'll keep me posted if he hears anything from Mum. Michael's full of bravado, making jokes about having a holiday from Mum's nagging. 
I catch him out of character as I start to leave. For a moment, I see the little boy I used to terrify at night with stories of the boogeyman under his bed. I didn't move out of home as soon as I turned 18 so I could come back to play nursemaid to these two, but I offer to check in on them in a few days' time anyway. I keep my word. Michael bails me up in the hallway as soon as I arrive. He looks worried. Dad's been trying to cook, he whispers, and is refusing to buy takeaways. It's awful, he says. Dad's in the kitchen now. Can't I do something? I go into the kitchen. Dad doesn't notice me. He's so focused on the task at hand. He's bought a couple of pieces of schnitzel and is trying to crumb them. He doesn't know you have to coat the schnitzel in flour and beaten egg first, and is trying to bludgeon the crumbs onto the meat. The crumbs are obliging. He pounds crumbs onto the schnitzel, lifts it up. The crumbs fall off. He mutters and curses under his breath, then repeats the whole process, his actions becoming more violent and uncoordinated with his frustration. I want to laugh, but then I see him swipe at unspilt tears with the back of his hand before hurling a slice of meat at the wall. It sounds like a slap cheek as it impacts, then slithers to the floor, trailing breadcrumbs as it goes. Dad looks up and realizes I have witnessed the whole episode. We avoid each other's eyes, equally embarrassed. He's a big man, my father, barrel-chested and heavily muscled, even now in his middle years. As a child, I thought him a giant, and still with a child's perceptions, I equate size with omnipotence. Now his predictable, rock-solid life is liquefied in his hands, and despite his strength, he can't contain it. Wordlessly, I clean up the mess. I promise myself that this will be the last time I pick up after my family. It feels like New Year's Day. I have a throbbing headache, a churning stomach, and a resolution that is on the express bus to oblivion. I pack us all off to the RSA, half hoping that Dad will take solace in the bottle, like his best mate Alfie did when his daughter drowned two summers ago. At least then, it'll be the barman's problem, not mine. But Dad just has a couple of beers with his meals and then goes home for an early night. That's a typical of Dad, refusing any form of support, constructive or otherwise. I reckoned you could chop him off at the knees and he would drag himself around in bloody knuckles before he'd accept crutches. Michael mopes into his coke. I try to cheer them up by telling them that I'm sure Mum's okay. She's a big girl, can look after herself. They don't want to hear it. They want to hear me tell them that they are going to be okay. I'm not sure if they will be. It's day ten since Mum's disappearance and Michael rings again. His voice is distorted with tears. My first thought is that something must have happened to Mum, and my gut clenches with fear. But as Michael rings out his words, I learn that Mom's budgie, Blue, has died. I can't understand what the fuss is about. We all viewed Blue with contempt and a touch of jealousy, and I'm sure he felt the same way about us. Mom's got him from a neighbor when I was eleven, supposedly for Michael and me, but he snapped and squawked at anyone who approached his cage except for Mom, so he became hers. 
She would chatter away to Blue about all sorts of rubbish, and Blue would preen and chatter back. Michael and I often mocked her for her attachment to him, and Dad, being incapable of mocking, would just scowl. A couple of times Michael and I even tried to accidentally dispose of Blue by leaving his cage door open, but the stupid bird liked his prison too much to leave it. I jokingly ask Michael if he's finally succeeded in assassinating Blue now that Mum's not around. Michael says that it's not funny and Dad's really upset. Now I know he must be losing the plot and I get impatient with him. I say that maybe it's a good thing that Mom's gone. Now Michael might have to grow up. Michael swears at me and hangs up, proving my point. Attending a funeral is as good a way as any to spend my evening, so I wander round home. The house is empty when I arrive. I take my cue to the men's whereabouts from the door gaping open onto the back garden. There is a cooling summer breeze carrying a hint of sea salt. I breathe deeply, as much for the pleasure of it as to prepare myself to greet them. I can see them at the end of the garden. Both have their backs to me. I take my time walking down the lawn to meet them. Dad is kneeling in the dirt, and Michael stands a few paces behind him. Michael shudders, his hands pressed to his mouth. As I draw level with him, I realize that what I thought was suppressed slobs is actually suppressed laughter. Ignoring him, I sneak closer to Dad and peer over his shoulder. The tears that threatened to spill over the schnitzel incident are now streaming unrestrained down Dad's cheeks. He holds in his right hand Blue's rigid corpse, and in his left hand he holds a cardboard box. It is too small for the intended purpose, which is to be Blue's coffin, but this doesn't stop Dad from trying to fit Blue into the box anyway. He tries one angle. Blue's feet stick out. Another angle, and his lifeless head protrudes. Incredibly, he tries to fold Blue into the box, but in death, as in life, Blue is uncooperative. Dad is talking to himself. I catch the words stupid, bloody, bird expelled through clenched teeth. Little sky-blue feathers are detaching themselves from Blue's body. They dance and swirl in the twilight air. I feel the hysteria bubble deep in my belly. I grab Michael's arm and propel him up the lawn, around the side of the house, and out of Dad's sight and hearing. We lower ourselves to the ground lean our backs against cool green weatherboard and let it overwhelm us. We laugh, we howl, we gasp, our tears soaking our faces. It's not very respectful to Dad or to Blue, but, as Mum often said, you have to laugh, otherwise you'd cry. The End Tracy McBride is a mother of three from New Zealand. Her work has appeared in various e-zines, including Alien Skin, Flash Me, and Spoiled Ink. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and their respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com 
for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories 